Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me are your co-hosts, Caleb Wells. Hey, Caleb. Hey, y'all. How's hey. it going? Good, man. The man that we survived got... the eye of the storm. I'm telling you, we were we were right. I mean, the eye of Zeta went right over us. Honestly, I think it was probably 30 minutes. It was interesting. First time, I mean, I've been in tons of hurricanes. Well, you know, relatively tons, but first time I've ever been in an eye, so that was cool. And we have another one that's possibly coming our way, Ada or whatever. Ada. Yeah, it's been one of those years. <laughs> Let's, they said that's going to be more towards Florida, I, I think. But uh, well, it's interesting it because well, the track this morning, there's like five places you can go. <laughs> they they really don't know. <laughs> that's why they um, call it spaghetti, right? <laughs> So we, we will see. Hopefully it will not come our way. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. I think Louisiana has been had enough for this season. Right? Yeah. So the fact that it's called Ada, does that mean that you've had more than 26 of them? Like, yes. Then they have one yeah, big letter? Yeah, they've, they've gone into the Greek alphabet. Oh, They're like nice. six, they're six or seven into the Greek alphabet at this point. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you, you have one like every week or something then? Uh, yeah, like, some, oh. some weeks too, right? Well, and I, and it was like three weeks ago, there were actually eight disturbances out there. Some hadn't even become tropical storms, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting season, which fits in perfectly with 2020 and COVID and all the other stuff, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right. So how are you doing, Why? Yeah, Why Lou, the man yeah. with the uh, weird time zones. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, us Australians, eh? Um, yeah, yeah, much better if the world was flat, right? Oh yeah. Then, then yeah. we'd have one time zone. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, we would be interested in hearing what you think about one time zone. We were actually having this discussion. Just every everywhere is the same exact time, and why I suggest just use UTC, right? You know, UTC zero. And I'm like, cool. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm up for that. <laughs> we'll make things easier for all of us developers, right? Oh, yeah. So oh. many problems solved. Oh. <laughs> Sign me up. Sign me up. All right. So our guest today is Matthew Groves. Welcome, Matthew, to the show. Thank you very much, Sean. Yeah, yeah glad to be for here. being here. Yeah, glad to have you. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, and uh, how you got into development and what you do now, what your interests are? Sure. I mean, uh, the short version is I just love coding and that's how I got into development. I'm seeing some of the same things my daughter right now. She's picked up uh, Scratch and she's really starting to get those uh, synapses firing with the coding and uh, about the same age as her. So that's that's probably where it started for me. And I just uh, really love coding. And uh, my first time getting a work from home job was, oh geez, 10 years ago. And at that point is when I started to get into the developer community and organize, helping to organize user groups and events and speaking at them. And, and that helped me get into kind of where I am now, which is the developer advocacy area, which is where I've been at Couchbase for over four years. So you, you were ahead of, the, ahead of the curve with working remote. I like to think so. Is... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been oh. great. I was, I was nervous about it at first, which is why I tried to pursue as many in-person community events mm -hmm. as I could which yeah. 
it's, which has been great for me. Uh, it's, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy, you know, helping the community and uh, doing community activities. But then after about a year or so, I just decided remote is all I want to do from this point on. I like, I like remote work and I'm an advocate of it. And I'm, I wish, you know, I wish it didn't happen this way, but it seems <laughs> like remote is something that's growing in popularity. So uh, since you've done remote for so long, you know, and a lot of us are new to it. What are some points and tips that we we can note about to um, you know make it work for the rest of us? I don't think I have anything that you haven't heard elsewhere. But one of the things for me was having a door I could close because I do have uh, kids, and especially during the summer, it's important for them to know that door is something you shouldn't go through unless there's an emergency. And, you know, just when I'm in the office is when I'm working. And I think it's also important to vice versa. Other side of the door is once I leave for the day, I'm, that's, that's it for me. I'm, I'm working. I'm, I try to set some boundaries as much as possible to, to just leave the work behind because you don't have that same kind of commute, which is kind of a psychological break. So you have to make up for that in other ways. You know, it's, it's interesting because I've had to do the same thing with my wife and my son. I've been working remote off and on for the last few years. But now my wife definitely treats my office as a workspace. And if I come in here in the evening, whether I'm checking email or I'm going to play a game or something, she still thinks I'm in the office and I can't, I need to be left alone. And that, that irks her. So we've, <laughs> so it's like, if you're going to be in here, you're going to be working. If you're not working, you're not going to be in the office. Right. And, and it works out. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, I agree. And and I still treat lunchtime as a kind of an important break in the day, which is yeah. great because I don't have to drive to a lunch location. Not that I really could right now anyway, but I leave the office. I go spend uh, some time having lunch. Usually my wife's here with me and, you know, during the summer, my kids are. So it's a, it's a, a nice way to spend more time with your family as well. Less commute time, less time in the car, more time with the family. And that's one of the things I really, really like about it. Yeah, Absolutely. I started... I only started doing the working from home thing during COVID and it's just incredible how much extra time you have, you know, like every day and you actually see a lot more of your family basically. So absolutely. Yeah. So you're a developer advocate at Couchbase. So for those that don't know, what is Couchbase? Couchbase is a NoSQL database company, NoSQL server, NoSQL mobile options, NoSQL synchronization and We've been around for almost as long as I've been remote, so 10-ish years, and it's just really interesting NoSQL tool. We can get into it a little bit, but that's that's the basics. Well, yeah, let, let's definitely get into it. What is, uh, what is NoSQL? Oh, boy. So NoSQL <laughs> is a buzzword that, honestly, I really hate. Even though I work for a company, we have NoSQL splashed everywhere. It's, it's not very meaningful, right? It basically defines what something isn't. And as we get into it, you're going to see that's not even really true anymore. So it's it's just kind of a buzzword meaning non-relational. It, it's a it's different than what we've done, you know, since the since the late 70s. Really, it's all it really means. And I prefer a, a more specific term. They're still not perfect, but a more specific term like document database or key value store, or graph database, uh, wide column things like that. One of the things that I kind of associate it with, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but with SQL, right, you have to have a schema and you have some defined rows and columns that you have to stick to. And with NoSQL or document databases, that's not necessarily the case. You're you're you have more freedom, but you then that's also more stuff you have to manage somewhere else. Yep, I think that's absolutely right. Document databases 
you know, there's some structure you can impose on it, like it has to be valid JSON mm-hmm. uh, or, or XML in some cases. And yeah. there's some place, yeah. there's some <laughs> places where you can do some validation, but it's still not the same thing as an enforced schema. So, yes, it is very much a a pro and a con. To some people, it's a big pro. For some use cases, it's a big pro. For some for some people, they'll see an example of two different shapes of data in the same collection, the same area, and that that's really something that they're like, you know, it, it makes them shudder just like you did now for XML. <laughs> so it really, really depends on a lot of factors, whether it's a pro or a con. I, I see it generally as a pro if it's in right. the right use case. And I, and I think you can, you don't have to do all SQL or all document database. You can do, you can do a mix of both depending on what fits best or what meets your needs, right? Absolutely. And, and I would go further and say that we, we say the word SQL, we say the term SQL, what we right. really mean is relational, right, because exactly. SQL is the language that we work with relational databases traditionally. But actually, that's not true anymore. We can use SQL with non-relational databases as well, mm. which is why the term NoSQL is even <laughs> less useful than it started out being. <laughs> gotcha. So on that note, then, what do you reckon are the use cases where you would generally use NoSQL and when you would generally use relational? Yeah, I, I mean, I get this question a lot, and, and it really depends because, like I said, NoSQL is such a broad term you know, there's almost always something in the NoSQL universe that can fit a use case, right? So that's why I think you need to be a little more specific. But that being said, I think NoSQL at a high level and more specifically distributed NoSQL is really good for cases of where you need some easy scalability and, you know, you need some big scalability, right? Some, some horizontal scaling is kind of the key there. And as we mentioned already, flexibility, if that's something that you can benefit from. It's a huge help there or, or a nice side effect, depending on how you look at it. High availability is another one because it's distributed instead of you know the one single database server. If it goes away, well, now we're in trouble. Whereas if it's distributed, if one server goes down, we can still keep going. We can still recover. No, no downtime for the end users uh, for that. And I think performance is another one, which every database claims to be super fast and always better than every other database in terms of performance. But depending on your use case, again, there are some, some things in NoSQL and document databases and key values, some, some access patterns that can really improve performance. Those are so kind heard, of the four big ones, yeah. So I heard like one major difference is that with NoSQL, and I guess I'm just speaking very generally, but that it, the emphasis is on fast read times, and, but, on, um, but slow write times, but um, on relational is the opposite. Well, would that be true? I, I think that, again, that's probably something that may be true about certain types of NoSQL databases. So I think right. probably about wide table, like Cassandra, that's definitely true. But, but something like a Couchbase, for instance, which has a memory-first architecture, can and the way it scales also is conducive to very good read and write times. But again, it depends on what is your mix of reads and writes. Are you 50-50? Are you 20-80? 80-20? You know, what's the size of the data you're reading and writing? All those things are, are variables there. Hmm. What do you mean when you say memory-first architecture? Yeah, good question. So the way Couchbase works is that, well, and this will probably lead into another question I see on the list here, which is what <laughs> I get all the time. But the way it works is Couchbase was originally kind of a combination of memcached and CouchDB. Okay. So you would write into memory and you read from memory. And so you're always going to memory-first. And if there is a miss in the cache, then you have to go to disk. And of course, all the writes will get written to disk eventually. But you're always going through memory first. All right. That makes sense. Cool. So 
one of and we can we can dig into it further if you want to but one of the things i'm curious about that you've mentioned from a neurosexual standpoint in some of your speaking is how you handle modeling right and of course i'm digging more into the nosql space i'm getting more familiar with it but i'm much more comfortable or knowledgeable in the you know you have your schema and then you have your entity models and then you have your view models how do you handle that from a NoSQL standpoint. Yeah, this is probably one of the biggest hurdles to really get the benefits of NoSQL is is to understand the, the modeling. With with the relational model, it's a little bit more prescriptive. Usually it's third normal form, third normal form, sometimes a little higher, but it's always, you know, foreign keys, multiple tables, all that kind of stuff. With a NoSQL with a document database approach specifically, you have a lot more options in terms of do I denormalize, do I keep it normalized, and so on. And you know, that making that leap, you know, even for me, first starting with Couchbase was something that I really had to wrap my head around. Just as an example here, something I, I, I use in some of my presentations is let's think about two different types of, of data models here. And we'll keep them really simple. But we have a shopping cart and items in the shopping cart. So that's one. And then another group would be a, a Twitter account and tweets. All right. So in a relational model, those would probably be, again, taking a simplistic approach be modeled a very similar way. You'd have a shopping cart table, and then you have a shopping cart items table with a foreign key that points back to shopping cart. And the same for Twitter. You'd have a Twitter account table and a tweets table with a foreign key that points back to the account. And so in, in that case, you know, it's very prescriptive. We, we always follow it this way, and, and we can get into asset transactions. You know, those are very important in our relational databases. With a document model, we can choose to model it two different ways. So we can embed those items into the sort of aggregate root item, if you're familiar with that concept. So instead of having a shopping cart document and a shopping cart item document, we have a shopping cart document, which itself contains an array of items. So instead of you know four pieces of data across two tables, we have a single piece of data. And this gets back to the performance question, is instead of a join or you know four reads, four writes or whatever, we have a single read and a single write. So you get a performance benefit right there. But back to the Twitter model, you know, having a single document with every tweet, you know, unless you're very new at Twitter and you only have a half dozen tweets, you're going to have hundreds, thousands of tweets and you can't embed that all into a single document because that's going to be, there's going to be limits, one, and it's going to be an incredible performance problem to move that document as an entirety across the wire. So you can still model it the other way where you split out each tweet into its own document and still have the sort of root document as separate. And, and so that's really becomes the question with modeling is which approach do I take? Do I embed this or do I keep it sort of a split out and you know normalized? And there's not really a, uh, I can't tell you prescriptively which one you should do until I, I know more about your use case. Well, your, your first use case really makes me think a lot about state management on the front end, right? And you have your, your tree and you go get your user info when they log in, and then you keep adding to that tree based on what's needed. And you have to determine how often you want to call the back end to get information versus, you know, how much information you want to hold in that state, right? Mm -hmm. So, right. Uh -huh. and, that, and that, by the way, is another uh, case where it might make sense to have both relational and non-relational in the same uh, system. You could keep your data in a normalized form if you need to for legacy reasons or integration reasons or whatever, but still have a really fast memory first or memory only, in some cases, mm -hmm. uh, database to act as kind of a 
companion to that database for really quick access of, say, user profile or a shopping cart or some, some use case like that. So would that literally just be setting up two databases or is there like a solution that, that does both? I mean, in that case, yeah, you might, if you want to use a NoSQL database as kind of a companion to the relational yeah. database, then yeah, it'd be two different databases and you may have some, you probably have to have some sort of integration between them, whether it's on the front end or the back end or or something, or some sort of microservice setup. Okay. So I find the big, like I've, I've done a little bit with NoSQL as well. I find the biggest thing is, is that modeling. And I find the, the difficulty is more in trying to project what the future use cases are. Like going back to that example about embedding the document, I find that like, yeah, if you embed the document, yeah, you will improve on the, on, on the retime. You don't have to do a, a join, but then like you might, you might get to a situation where you might need to say, need to do a full table scan because you need to read, let's say every single item that, that is embedded in that collection. So, and then once right. you get that, you, you just don't know whether in the future you would have that use case. Right. Well, and, and that's, that's where it comes down to one of the things about NoSQL that I think separates it from relational is that with relational, typically we have one way to read and write data, a SQL query of some sort. With no, many NoSQL databases, there's multiple access methods. So there's the, there's the standard kind of key value lookup where I know the key of this document, and I can look it up. And that's extremely fast. I try to lean towards that as much as possible for performance reasons. But as you're saying, that's not always going to work for data access. So that's why you got to look at the secondary ways to, to look up data. So whatever, what's the query engine for the NoSQL database, right? If it's a SQL style query, for instance, and, and what are the indexes for that? That's going to be very important for performance. Maybe it's a full text search type of lookup where I'm searching by a keyword or something that I can't really do effectively with a query language like like a SQL. Is it a kind of an analytics business, you know, a BI type of uh, thing where I'm doing, you know, really complex queries and I want to do some massive parallel processing? Like that's a different type of a lookup there. And there's also, you know, synchronization for disaster recovery, for multiple data centers, for mobile devices even. So kind of a proactive, you know, sync is another way you can you can read and write data. So, you know, that's kind of the, one of the pros of the NoSQL world is that and you know, any given one of these NoSQL options are going to have a different set or subset of those types of access methods. And so pairing the right access method to your use case is an extremely important step as well. Uh, for for querying, like you mentioned, if you're using Couchbase with C Sharp and .NET, how do you suggest you go about querying the data? Entity framework, Dapper, something else? Yeah, that's a good question. I get that one a lot about from .NET developers because I don't know if all .NET developers like Entity Framework. I think it's probably about half and half, maybe, that either like it or hate it. But it's an important tool. And so I can say right now, Couchbase doesn't have a homegrown Entity Framework solution. I think there's a third-party one out there. It's something that's definitely on our roadmap to add. I will say, though, if, if you're talking about from querying and you want a link provider, there is a link to Couchbase open source project, which is very active and, and used by a lot of our customers and, and users, where you can write, you know, a link expression, and that'll get translated into Couchbase's query language, which, by the way, is a form of SQL. Okay. So if you're familiar with SQL and you don't like in the framework, you can go that route too. And you can just write SQL queries, you know, right in, in Couchbase. It's not, it's not going to be Dapper because Dapper requires an ADO.NET implementation, but it'll be very similar where I'm just putting in a SQL query and mapping it to you know a, a C sharp type. Okay. So does that mean that you'll if you do use something like Entity Framework or like what is it the Couch to Link? Does link that mean you will have to define a schema, which will remove one of the benefits uh, so, of Couch to be? Right. So you know you don't have to define a schema 
It's just you'll you'll have to you know define a well you don't have to but you could define a class for the JSON mm-hmm. results to be well, let's get this backwards deserialized to yeah. those objects right yes now and now it gets a little tricky when you talk about making changes to and I and I won't say there's no schema in Couchbase it's just think of it as an inferred schema right so mm-hmm. you know one document might have first name and last name one document might have first name middle name and last name. But we can kind of infer a schema of, okay, there's at least first name and last name in most documents and sometimes might have middle name, right? And certainly you need to have a little bit more discipline with, you know, don't just put in, you know, first name in one and first underscore name in the other. That's that's, that's true of SQL, by the way. I've seen some really ugly uh, SQL schemas as well. I don't know if you have ever seen a, like a a numeric field that's actually a varchar, for instance. I I have actually (laughs) worked with people who treat SQL table building or schemas like excel so i feel you <laughs> like first normal form <laughs> yeah yep i understand yep. I've, I've been there i've been there yep so you mentioned in indexing how does indexing mm-hmm. difference between you know relational database and NoSQL? yeah i mean i think it's very similar in fact if you're looking at couchbase the syntax is very similar you know create index and then specify the fields or you know there's different types of indexes you know covering indexes and Functional indexes, partial indexes, all that, all that good stuff is there. The cal- calculate indexes. We have something called adaptive. I think they call it adaptive indexes, where you can specify a, a a range of fields. So instead of having to create you know a dozen different indexes, you can create one that kind of covers a, a number of different permutations of of fields. But it's you know think of a JSON field like you would a column in a database. It's kind of analogous. So you could index first name. You can index last name or combination first name and last name in, in a Couchbase index, just like you could in, in relational. I would say, though, the indexes are probably even more important in NoSQL than they are in relational. I, and I, don't, I know I'm never guilty of this, but I'll create a table and just not put an index on it and let the full table scan fly because there's only going to be 100 rows and you know who's going to know the difference, right? Right, right. Who, right. who but, wants to but, waste the time? making the index right you got better <laughs> things to do right <laughs> exactly but it, but in a database like couchbase for one it's probably going to be a much larger set of data and it's going to be a heterogeneous set of data so performing a the equivalent of a full table scan is just going to just not be a good experience for anyone i mean once you get yeah. past a certain level of data it's going to be timeouts and unhappiness so index extremely important and that's why in couchbase for instance the equivalent of a full table scan is actually turned off by default so you can't fall into that pattern unless you opt into it. That's actually that's smart, right? Especially for people who are learning it from scratch. You don't want them to fall into anti-patterns or using it in ways that it wasn't intended. It's it's true, but it's, sometimes it's a bit of a hurdle if if they try it for the first time and they put in a select star from bucket name and it, and it fails. And it's like, well, this doesn't work. <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. Right. Honestly, I cannot remember the last time I did a select star. <laughs> so, yeah. I still do them all the time, but I think it's a bad idea to put them into uh, production. Yeah. So one thing you mentioned earlier is acid. And yeah. uh, some people may not know what that means, but it basically, right, stands for consistency, atomicity. I just screwed Close. that one. Atomicity. <laughs> yeah. Atomicity. Yeah. Atomicity. There we go. Isolation and durability, right? That's um, right. Can you speak to that with with NoSQL and Couchbase? Yeah. How much? Uh, how many hours you got? <laughs> hey, as long as you <laughs> want to go, we have some episodes we've broken into two, three, okay. you know, segments. Yeah. <laughs> well, consist- I, consistency has been always something that really 
has always made me hesitate when going mm. to uh, a NoSQL type okay. of environment. So it's good to learn okay. about that. Sure, sure. I have a whole presentation on on ACID, and I could talk about this. Something I, I I think is very important, and I think it's somewhat misunderstood because when people mention ACID, what they usually mean is ACID transactions, and I think it's two different things, okay. right? So atomicity is. I'll just try to do the, the brief version of this if I if I can. Atomicity, and let me bring up my notes here just so I don't mess this up. But basically means if I have an operation or a group of operations, they either all succeed or they all fail as one atomic unit, right? So no matter what happens, if it, if it fails, the database will be in the same state it was before I tried those operations. Okay? Kind of the idea of unit of work, right? It's Very similar to that. All yes. or none. Right. Okay. Right. And so people will say, well, NoSQL isn't ACID compliant. Well, first of all, again, ACID is not a a standard, right? There's no body that, that uh, certifies ACID compliance, right? So we're already in a place where we need to discuss what that means. But uh, the second thing is, if we're talking a single document, or back to the shopping cart example, if it's all combined in a single document, in a single operation, well, we have ACID then, uh, because we're, we're doing the same thing a relational database is doing without the need for a transaction. So in terms of single document, almost all NoSQL databases are going to have atomicity in terms of a single operation. So the question then becomes, what about multiple operations? And we can get to that. And consistency is basically that data is never going to be in an invalid state. So if you are in the process of writing some data, updating some data, if another process comes along, it should not see that, that data with its pants down, basically. It, it should not see the data being changed in progress. It should either see the data before or after that operation. And so again, at the single operation level, we have that with NoSQL. And there's a whole Jepson, Jepson.io is what I recommend going to check out if you really want to get deep into this, because they have a, I mean, they built their whole business around consistency. So if you want to bone up on that. Isolation is uh, kind of has to do with locking. So if you're familiar with the concept of locking in databases, we want to, for concurrency, we want to lock out other databases from messing with their data. And durability is making sure our data is safe in case of a system failure. It usually means writing to disk, but again, I could talk about that for probably half an hour. What does durable enough mean, right? So I guess your question, Sean, was, was about consistency, and that was sort of your main concern. And, and I think this is probably because, unfortunately, some of the leading NoSQL providers have gotten some bad press over the years of, you know, sort of losing data or at least uh, appearing to lose data that, you know, that was, that should have been written, right? Yeah, the, the term I always hear is eventual consistency. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, what is eventual? You know, that doesn't seem yeah. to be too reliable. <laughs> well, so, yeah, and this might be, again, kind of a case of the naming being a, a little unfortunate, right? Because if I say, if my wife says, will you do the dishes? And I say, eventually, well, I'm, I really mean, no. <laughs> right, or, I mean, your your wife is not going to appreciate that. <laughs> I know mine wouldn't. <laughs> She's not going to listen to this. But, but you know, in, in terms of computer, computer science, eventual might mean, you know, a couple seconds or milliseconds, right? But, you know, a lot can happen in that couple milliseconds. So it's important to make that distinction academically. However, one of the things I will say is that one of the, one of the things about NoSQL is it's designed to be distributed you know, multiple machines communicating over a network. And so it's, it's more expensive to have, you know, sort of the in, more enforced consistency of reading that data, depending on how you, read, how you read and access it, right? So let's talk about indexing and queries again, right? So if I add some new data to my database, and I want the index to be updated with that data, right? If I'm using a key value access method, no problem. It's going to be there 
guaranteed. No worrying about eventual consistency. It's going to be there. If I'm going through a query, now I have to go through an index. And that index, for performance reasons, among others, it may not be updated right away. So if I do a write and then immediately turn around and do a query, that data may not be indexed yet. And, th- and there are many use cases where that's fine. If we have to wait a few milliseconds for the index to get updated, no problem. However, and there's some use cases where, okay, I want to read the data I just wrote. And so what you have to do then is you have to determine that I want to make a trade-off here. And so I, I don't want eventual consistency in this case. I want immediate consistency, but there's a performance trade-off there. So it's going to be a little slower. I have to wait for that index to get updated. And so the default is often eventual consistency because that's just faster, but it's not right for every use case. So, you know, eventual consistency is not something you always have to live with. It's something that you could see as a benefit. And in the cases where you don't want that, you can actually specify that usually at the API level. Say for this particular set of operations, I don't want eventual consistency. I want strong consistency. Right. So most relational databases are that immediate consistency. So because they're updating the index at the same time, they're updating the data. Right. But NoSQL gives you that option of which way do you want it. Well, in the case of Couchbase, it's always going to be asynchronous updating the index. So there's, no, there's no immediate for Couchbase? Well, well let, me, let me take that back. So we just introduced some new features for ACID because that, that was this requirement for ACID transactions is to have sort of durability checks. So yeah, you can do that with Couchbase as well. But uh, sort of the other way to go about this is we're going to kind of wait for the index to be updated. And okay. so there's some, there's some, either way, there's some performance overhead involved there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Yeah, the use case I always always worried about is one person's updating the data and another person at the same time is reading, but not getting that last second updated data. They're getting old data. So that was always my biggest worry. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I mean that's definitely the consistency and also potentially even the isolation as well comes comes into play there. So again, depends on the use case, right? I was gonna say with NoSQL, uh, you don't have to deal with database locks, huh? (laughs) Well, So again, I can't speak for all of them, but I'd say Couchbase does have locks, both optimistic oh, and pessimistic. Okay. So, okay. Uh, and right. again, those are important for the asset transactions, which is a relatively right. new thing to NoSQL. You gotcha. need to have some locks in place for that. Yeah, I'm just, I agree, locks are important. I'm just thinking about the, the nasty ones where someone's doing a query of way too much data and people get piled up behind them. Um, yeah. Right. But it's it's nice to know that you guys are factoring that in for people who, for ACID, for that that need to have that consistency, as Sean puts it. Right. Well, and the, yeah. one of the philosophies at Couchbase is, you know, we're not just trying to rebuild a relational database here. You know, there's reasons that people want a distributed NoSQL database. Some of our large customers want that. So when we build in some of these features like ACID and locks and, you know, SQL queries, things like that, we build them in a way where, you know, if you want performance in a narrow use case, you can still get it. But if you want more flexibility, you know, stronger consistency, things like that, you can also get that, but you have to opt into it. So if we don't have anything else about ASA right now, which like you said, we can go forever and we'll we'll get a link to the the speaker notes or, or what you mentioned so people can dig into it if they want. Sure. But I guess the next thing that I'm curious about is right, database as a service. Sure. Right. And in Azure right? You have multiple options. SQL in Azure is still ridiculously expensive because it just, 
It just is, right? Okay. <laughs> how how does Couchbase compare from in in that arena in terms of of cost and, and pricing? Well, uh, well, uh, well, so well, well, the whole package, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I will say I'm an advocate, and some people consider that to be marketing or sales, but I'm absolutely not. So, in terms of pricing, I, you know, I am, I am not one who knows prices of things very well. Like I don't know SQL Server's pricing. I don't know. Generally speaking, I have an idea of what Couchbase's pricing is, but there's usually a lot more, you know, stuff that factors mm. into that than just you know okay. the, the list price, right? But in terms of running on Azure, so I'm Couchbase. Let me take a step back here. First of all, database is a service. This is, kind of goes back to the entity framework question is that there are people who feel very strongly that database as a service is the way to go. And people who feel very strongly about, there's still people who are anti-cloud out there and, and or they want to have a lot more control of their database than leaving it to somebody else. So that being said, Couchbase is something that has been deployable to on-premise and cloud, you know, most popular cloud providers since the, since the very beginning, right? It has a, we have an official Docker container, we have a Kubernetes operator, we're in all the major marketplaces. So Couchbase is something that has that embraced the cloud in that way. One of the things that Couchbase tries to do is, you know, this is again, kind of a, a use case that's important to some companies and not important to others, is a multi-cloud approach where you can easily run Couchbase on different cloud providers. You can have Amazon in the East and Microsoft in the West, for instance. Or you could switch from Amazon to Microsoft with relative ease if you if you want to or need to, and you know that's probably more important for the really big companies that you know can pull something like that off, right? But it's there, it's something that Couchbase can do, and also a hybrid model where you have an on-premise data center and a cloud center for disaster recovery or whatever reason. Now, one thing that's relatively new to Couchbase, and I'm really excited about this, is we actually do have an official database as a service provider now. It's called Couchbase Cloud, and it is the managed model where you can you know, basically you, you have a control panel and you go in and create an account and you have some levers to tweak. But for the most part, all that management of the infrastructure is handled by, uh, by Couchbase. Very similar to like a DynamoDB or a Cosmos DB, something like that that runs in the cloud. Now, right now, the Couchbase cloud is brand new this year. So I think it is just supporting AWS right now. I know Azure is on the list to be supported next and certainly Google Cloud to follow at some point as well. And uh, I just want to speak to the pricing app, right? I know like some of our clients, enterprise customers, pricing isn't necessarily their number one concern, mm-hmm. right? But coming from a solo guy who's maybe doing my own side projects, sure, right? I've got my personal website running in blob storage using Azure functions for a couple of simple things. And it's all static content, right? So I'm paying maybe a couple of dollars a month. So I get right there. There's two different ways of looking at that. Um, but I appreciate that y'all are looking at the database as a service and you've got Couchbase uh, Cloud. We'll, we'll add add a link to that in the show notes. People can go take a look. Yeah, and I believe there's a free trial right now if you want to sign up for that. Now, again, that's very much in the early stages. So we're working on making that a little more self-service and potentially having like a, like a free developer tier down the road as well. I, I'm not promising or guaranteeing any dates on those, but... I, I just know that those are probably going to be coming up um, sooner than later. Okay. So just just wanted to clarify, um, probably should have done this at the start, but what's the difference between Couchbase and, and CouchDB? You know, I never get asked that question, hardly ever. <laughs> no, I get asked that one all the time. That's probably the number one or number two most asked question because they both have Couch in the name, right? 
Right, yeah. Well, so I mentioned early on that Couchbase server is kind of a combination of CouchDB and MemcacheD. And that's that was kind of version one. That's kind of how it started. So CouchDB was kind of the, the disk-based storage and MemBase or MemCache was the was the memory-based storage. Now, the, real, the actual full story is a little more complicated and, and uh, probably a little boring, but the short version is that they're not really the same thing uh, at all. The couch part of Couchbase is just kind of a leftover name, not from CouchDB, but from a company named CouchOne, which you probably haven't heard of, but it was a, it was a startup from you know, the late 2000s that merged with another startup to form Couchbase. So it's not you know CouchDB and Couchbase. You can kind of think of like SQL Server and MySQL. Yeah, they both have SQL in the name, but and they're both NoSQL databases, but that's pretty much where the similarities end, right? They're, it's just kind of a name only. Now, there's a few bits, I think, of CouchDB, like a heavily forked modified version, like deep in the bowels of Couchbase server. But CouchDB, Couchbase itself is not API compatible with CouchDB or anything like that. In fact, it's probably more API compatible with MemcacheD, believe it or not, than it is with CouchDB. So it wasn't yeah. designed for Couch Potatoes by Couch Potatoes? <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak to that. We do have, there is a giant couch at our headquarters that I actually have a picture somewhere of me sitting on. So we, we do have that. So if I ever get back to the office, that'll be, that'll be there waiting for us. So you mentioned some other NoSQL you know, systems like Azure or Cosmos DB. How does it compare to other ones, you know, like RavenDB and Cosmos DB and, and all the others that are out there? Yeah. Sure. That's the number one or number two question right there is how do you compare to Mongo? So with Raven, I haven't used it very much. I know you guys have done an episode already, so I'd recommend you check that one out. This is a good place to put a link to that in the notes, I think. Hmm. Comparing it to Cosmos, they're both document databases, just like Mongo and, and Couchbase. So it, it's, a, it's a similar sort of approach. One of the things I like about Cosmos, actually, is that they also have a SQL query language for, for querying data. Now, it's, it's a a very small shadow of full SQL, right? So there's no joins, there's no updates. They just now added group by things like that. But I do like that they're going in that direction because I, you know, like, like you guys probably have been using SQL most of my career. And so it's nice to be able to take those same skills and apply them. So that's why I really like Couchbase. That's why I like the direction Cosmos is going. And there's a few others kind of going down that same that same road. MongoDB is also a document database, the most popular one, probably. Uh, so I get asked about it a lot. And I think there's some differences in the architecture there I could go into, you know, if you're really into that sort of thing. Certainly their query language is very different. It's a very different approach. It's a much more JavaScript-y looking query language that I find personally just a little more difficult to parse just because I'm looking at SQL my whole career. And so I, I really like the the syntax of the Couchbase query language better than, than Mongo. So that's that's one key difference, I think. And so, some of the architectural differences, the way the Mongo scales, the way that Mongo handles high availability are, I think, different than Couchbase, which I think maybe favors the, the much smaller project that doesn't have to worry about the scaling high availability yet. But we've seen many people come from Mongo to Couchbase because of the sort of simplified scaling, you know, the way that Couchbase scales compared to the traditional Mongo, like primary, secondary approach. So if you if you have anything else about NoSQL you think people should know, we'd love to hear it. And then I would like to go in a different direction and talk about your C-sharp advent event. Yeah, I had one other question on sure. the, the NoSQL yeah. and Couchbases. You know, NoSQL is typically JSON, but... There's also, it's got to be able to have some way to store large binary objects. How does Couchbase handle that? Right. So first of all, I would 
probably take issue with MySQL mostly being JSON. I'd say document databases are, but you know, something like a key value store can be anything. It can be some opaque value. It doesn't have to be JSON. Right, right, right. right. Uh, wide table doesn't have to be JSON either. Now, in terms of large binaries, this is one of those cases where, and I hope marketing doesn't shoot me for this, but I'd say that's that's probably a poor choice for Couchbase to store large binaries just because of the way that it scales. And there's actually a limit on the size of each document in Couchbase. I think it's 20 meg. And, and Mongo, I think, is like 15. Cosmos is like 12, something like that. So I don't think any of these are really good choices for storing binaries in. I, I think, you know, depending on what the binary is, like a blob storage, like Caleb mentioned, I think, and maybe even a file system or S3 or something like that is probably a better choice for that than Couchbase. That being said, we do have some customers who do it anyway. Uh, they'll they'll take large binaries, split them into parts, and you know twenty twenty meg chunks, and reassemble them, and, and such. It can be done. So you can literally store binaries in Couchbase. You can use it as if it were a key value store, and store whatever you want in there. So that's one approach. You could also you know base sixty four in code, and put into a, a string inside of JSON. That's another approach. I don't, but I don't think if you're storing, especially very large binaries, I don't think that Couchbase is a really good choice for that. Yeah, I probably agree. Definitely that. Uh... The binary should probably be stored somewhere else and then some sort of reference to that be yes. put in the, the document. We have we have one customer who does something like that. They do a lot of image and video processing and they use Couchbase to collect and store a huge amount of metadata, which I think is a great use case, but they don't actually store you know, the video or the image or the audio clip right there in Couchbase. I think it's a good good choice. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. So what's what's coming up for Couchbase? What's down the line? Oh, gosh. So I know uh, Couchbase 7, we're going to have a beta of that very soon. And so uh, one of the things that we've added to Couchbase is a better approach to multi-tenancy. So right now with Couchbase, you have the concept of a bucket, and a bucket contains all your documents. You can have multiple buckets, but that contains all your documents. We're going to add additional levels of organization where you can have a second level, which is called a scope, and a third level, which is called a collection. So a scope might correspond to a, a particular tenant. And then a collection might correspond to kind of like a table, in a sense. It's not a table, but it's kind of like a table where you could have, you know, if you have a multi-tenant application, you could just switch the scope and you immediately get a whole different set of data that corresponds to that tenant. So those features are actually in preview right now. You can play with them if you want to. They're going to have full support in uh, the next week's for Couchbase. That's one of the big things I'm looking forward to. And the other thing, which we've kind of touched on already, is ACID transactions. You know, Couchbase is adding ACID, and this, this is just in alpha right now, so I've got a chance to play with it. But uh, for .NET applications, ACID transactions there. And for Couchbase 7, our SQL language is going to have transactions as well. So you'll be able to begin SQL and then commit or ro roll back inside of the SQL query language. So that's some very exciting stuff that I think, you know, again, it's the kind of the thing that there's some trade-offs to it in terms of performance, but it's going to help, you know, traditional sort of slower moving enterprises to be more comfortable with adopting something like a Couchbase or a NoSQL to have those features there in case they need them or want them. I think they should be called cushions instead of buckets. You know, <laughs> stuff your cushions full of documents. We actually, we have a, a node library, which is kind of like an entity framework equivalent. It's called Ottoman. So you put that in front of your couch. <laughs> Where did nice. I put the remote? <laughs> All right. Well, if there's no other questions, Kayla brought up a really interesting topic that I think you're involved in, and that's called Advent, C-sharp Advent. Is that right? Yes. I'm so glad you asked. The C-sharp Advent is something that I love doing. 
I don't know if anyone, if you're all familiar with the concept of an advent, it's something that I didn't know about growing up and I only learned about later. But it's basically during the holiday season and typically the month of December, like every day you open up a little door or a little box or something and there's a little candy or toy in there. You may have seen Lego advent calendars before, 25 different Lego sets that you put together leading up to Christmas Day. And My son has five of those already, um, and he's only five years old. Okay. He's, he he knows all about Lego advent calendars. Yep, he loves them. I, I love the concept, <laughs> and I, I wish I had this growing up. We, we, our fam- my family didn't do it, so my current family, my immediate family, we're, we're doing that every year. And we've moved on from candy and toys. It's more about, like, activities and, and crafts and things. But then I – so I came across – and I can't, I'm going to butcher his name for sure, so I apologize. But Sergi Tihon, I believe is how it's pronounced, he was running what's called an F-sharp advent calendar where he'd ask people to sign up, uh, pick a day from December 1st through December 25th or whatever it is. And that would be their assigned day to publish a blog post or video or some sort of content relating to F-sharp, whether it's a design pattern, a keyword, a sample project, whatever, some piece of F-sharp content. And I love this. I love this idea because you can celebrate F-sharp all month long. So I said, hey, Sergi, can I steal your idea and just change it to C-sharp advent? He said, sure. So I did that, and I was super nervous about it the first time. I was afraid no one was going to sign up, or they're all going to forget, or or something like that. But it went really great the first year. And the best part about this is when you publish a blog post, you link back to the main uh, C-sharp advent calendar, so you can find all the other articles. And so everybody gets like an old-fashioned web ring. I don't know if you're if you're all old enough to remember those, but uh-huh. uh, everybody gets a big boost in traffic and we celebrate the C-Sharp yeah. community. Yeah. And it's a great, <laughs> it's a great, great effort all, all December long. Currently we're in the signup phase. So I have like eight or nine slots left. So if any of you or any of your listeners would like to sign up to be part of this, please go csadvent, www.csadvent.christmas. Yes, that's a real domain name, www.csadvent.christmas. And you can sign up there and get involved. How long have you been doing this? This is the fourth year. The fourth annual is this is this year. So I actually, the first year I had 25 spots and I had to turn people away. So I, after that, I doubled it. There's 50 spots every year. And I've got, uh, you know, just a handful of slots left. And so starting December 1st, we'll actually start revealing that content as people publish it. And you get to see two great C-sharp pieces of content every day during Christmas. It's a great way to celebrate the community, celebrate the season and give everybody a little boost in traffic to their various social medias and blog posts and stuff like that. Maybe we could do an slot. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. I think we had a a podcast uh, last year do an episode for the C-Sharp Advent. So that'd be great. Cool. Yeah, I think the show will come out probably first part of December. So there might be a couple out there already if the listeners want to check it out. But there are definitely more more to come. And of course, they could also uh, sign up for next year. That's right. So signups usually start around late October, but certainly go and check out the content. This will be on December. Check out the content there and you'll get to know some great people in C-Sharp that you maybe didn't know about and you can follow their blogs and follow their Twitter and it's all great, great stuff. Do you have some favorites that you've uh, you know had from the past years? Oh boy, I have to think about that. Probably should have thought of this in advance, but you know, some of my favorites are usually around like if they incorporate the theme into the post where it's about the Grinch or it's about Rudolph or something. Those are super fun because they fit the theme. It's really good. 
you know, some of these posts are a way I've learned about things in C Sharp that I just, they're just small little snippets of something that really helps my productivity. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a super long, you know, book long post. It can just be a quick little tip. And those are a lot of fun. And um, I recognize uh, several of these names. Actually, on the 25th, it's you and Michael Jolly, the bald right. uh, bearded builder. Yes, right? he participated last year as well on the 25th. And cool. yeah, so he was looking forward to it. He actually is usually proactive and, and like, hey, is it ready yet? Hey, is it ready yet? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so um, any other things that you want to let the listeners know about or how they can get in touch with you? That'd probably be a good thing. If they have questions about Couchbase or you know Advent CS, C sure, yeah, you can you can find me on Twitter M Groves M G R O V E S on Twitter. I'm also there on GitHub. GitHub also M Groves. Uh, Twitch is actually Matthew D Groves. That's uh, two T's in Matthew D Groves on Twitch, and of course my own blog, which I don't spend as much time uh, used to, except for Advent posts, is acrosscuttingconcerns.com. You can check that out there as well. But yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions about Couchbase, about C Sharp Advent, about anything really. You know, it gets, we're in isolation here. I got my family, but sometimes it gets a little lonely down here in the basement. So tweet, tweet me something and ask me a question or, or just send me a, a cute cat picture. That'll be fine too. All right. Caleb can handle that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if the listeners want to reach out to the show, give us feedback. Love to hear it. I'm on Twitter at.net superhero. And with that, let's move on to picks. When I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then, and the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues, or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. Who wants to go first? Hey, hey. I'll go first. And to Sean's surprise, this will not be a switch pick, right? Because... I haven't had the chance to play on that thing in a month because it's either my son doing the Labo car VO kit, VR kit, or my wife playing Animal Crossing. So I'm bringing up the Switch, but I'm not picking the Switch. I actually sent you a suggestion for the Switch, you know? Battle Zone. Battle Zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, see, I, I can't recommend things that I haven't tried and for me, if it's not on sale, I'm not going to buy it because that's part of the game, right? To find it on sale. So when it goes on sale, we'll see, right? Are Switch games ever on sale, though? They're always really expensive, right? No, actually, you'd be surprised. The store is not set up. It's not really conducive to a lot of these game developers. It's just not set up very well. So unless you're featured, it can be hard to find you, especially after the first month. So some... Uh, companies will actually drop their price to like 99 cents for a week to get uh-huh. them up to the top of the charts, sales charts, and then they go back to regular price. And so I, I keep track of that stuff. And when, <laughs> when it drops, I get an email. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. So, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So my pick this week is actually a podcast 
horror anthology. I like the podcasts that are more, well, I mean, I love our podcast, right? Of course. But I like getting into podcasts that are story driven, you know, and have that, that je ne sais quoi, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> no one told me they'd be French. <laughs> that that just came out of nowhere. I don't know. He, I mean, they, they know me. You never know what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> he lives in Louisiana. So, forgive him. <laughs> right? Yeah, les uh, les bon temps roulés, and who that? Right. So yeah. So it's old gods of Appalachia. I've only listened to like the first five or so episodes, but it's it's really interesting. It's uh, it's well done. So so what is it about? So like um, well, it's. It's a horror anthology series about Appalachia, basically, which for people who aren't from the U.S., that's kind of like Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky. It's a mountain range. And, and kind of the history behind Appalachia's, right, you got the Hatfields and McCoys, right? Or these, for lack of a better term, mountain hillbillies who, who don't like strangers and don't like outsiders and have lived there for centuries and so there's a lot of lore in, in Appalachia and a lot of background in witches and the, the woods, you know, people getting lost in the woods, never coming back, that kind of stuff. So, cool. yeah, my pick only took 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why don't you go next, Why? Okay. So, so my pick this week is on the RxJS, I guess, their reference page. So I guess aside from .NET, I which, as you know, I'm pretty passionate about. But um, I also do a lot of my front-end work using Angular. And I think of Angular, like as with most single-page apps, it's really all about reactive programming. And I guess most people will be using RxJS. But I think one of the problems about RxJS is it's, it's just like, it's actually really big. It's, there's like dozens and dozens of operators. And some of the names aren't really that descriptive, like at least not for someone like me who's not really got that much of a functional programming background. But but yeah, I was just on their reference page and I kind of noticed that there's this like, it's kind of like an operator decision tree and it's it just seems really cool. It just asks you a bunch of questions about like what you actually like want to do with the data and then it kind of recommends the operator you should use. And and I think overall the the RxJS documentation is just, it's just really good. It's got lots of diagrams and like I feel like I've, I've worked with RxJS for like a number of years, but I feel like I, I don't really use it to its full potential. I really only just use like you know a couple of the more common operators. So I think it's, it's a way for me to try to learn more about RxJS and um, and, well, and and get better. I would I would bet that the people who wrote RxJS don't use it to its full. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because there's so much in there. Yeah, there is. Yeah. So cool. All right, so uh, my pick this week, I don't know if I ever mentioned this before, but I used to have a, a photography business, do a lot of retouching and things like that, so real estate and things like that. So I still have a lot of camera gear and still like to go out and do pictures. Like we just took our, our holiday picture this year so we can send it out with our, our cards and things like that. So my pick is this device that's called Arsenal, and it attaches to most you know SLR-type cameras and it allows you to control the camera through your smartphone. So you put an app on your phone and you can actually see what the lens sees, make all sorts of adjustments and things like that through your smartphones to your SLR camera. And then it also has a lot of smarts so it can actually do a lot of analysis of what the picture scene is like and 
either take multiple pictures and combine them together or do time lapse or do all sorts of things. And you can trigger the remotes, everything right that from this device. So check it out. It's really, really cool. I used to have just like remote triggers, but this just goes so full, so much beyond that. So it's called Arsenal. So does it have to be like a compatible SLR camera or does it work on every camera? Yeah, I, it works with most, uh, you know, Nikon, Canon, and I think Sony cameras. They have a compatibility list uh, on the website. They have an older version, which I have now, and it works really good. But they've also just kickstarted a new version, the version two, and that has some improvements in, in things like that to it. And I've I contributed to the Kickstarter to get this going, but you know they raised like four million dollars on Kickstarter for this thing, so it's definitely a very very popular product. That's cool. Very cool. All right, Matthew, what's your pick? So I think I'm going to go with a TV series. That's I mean it's it's finished, it's over, it's not uh, any new episodes being made, but I think it's a criminally underrated TV show that I think any developer listening to this or anyone interested in tech, is going to absolutely love. It's called Halt and Catch Fire. It's from AMC. I think you here, can find here. it up there on a few streaming platforms. What was that? I said here, here. Yeah. I, and it's, I, I agree. It's about sort of the, it's a fictional account, but a lot of real components to it. The rise of the personal computer in the 80s and even on to the beginning of the internet in the early 90s. Really, really good stuff. So definitely check that out. I have some other picks if I could... Maybe give you a, a land yap if I could use that term there. Too. Absolutely. Oh yeah, go ahead. There you go. <laughs> you know, you, you I talked love about it. you talked about AMC. You know, I think I've watched more AMC shows on non-AMC channel <laughs> you know, through streaming than than I ever have before. So, so one thing I'll plug here is it's probably mentioned on the show before. I, I would guess, but the Live Coders, LiveCoders.dev. It's a community of coders who stream on Twitch, a, a Twitch team who all do not gaming exclusively, but a lot of coding and building of things out there in a live stream, interactive community. It was started by a C-Sharp Fritz, who you're probably familiar with. Yeah. And I'm, I'm one of the members of the team, but there's lots of great people on there doing some really cool stuff. Anything from game development to you know boring business logic type stuff and, and everywhere in between. So a lot of great people on there. And I have, I have one more, if I, if I could. Is that okay? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Hey, oh, yeah. give us yeah, as many yeah, as you want. Okay. By the way, we we love live coders. Yeah, right. We've had a few of people uh, on the show. So. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. They're they're all good thieves. The, the last one is something I just received in the mail this week, and it is a it is a, from a company called Rec Room Masters, and I'll put the link there to the one that I purchased. But it is a it's a home arcade machine cabinet with uh, with joystick like real joystick type buttons on it. And I just set it up and I got some emulators running on it. And it is really, really slick and a reasonable price. It's very cool the way it works. So if you're into home arcade games, uh, something that's relatively realistic, but still gives you a lot of modern technology, modern flexibility possibilities, definitely check out Rec Room Masters. The one I got was the vertical, but they have lots of great machines there. Really lots of fun. You're, uh, you're making me get nostalgic going back to the days of putting a quarter into Street Fighter in the arcade and getting beat in less than five minutes and then, you know, getting back in line to put another quarter in. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, talk about me too. You know, I used to grow up playing Asteroids. You know, I spent 17 hours on one game and one quarter. So that was wow. that was my life back then when it was really popular. See, Sean, I, Sean's much better than me. He's, 
Right. I just and I walked away with like three lines of of ships left, and just gave it to this one little kid there. And this was at a skateathon, so it was a twenty four hour skateathon. So, you know, I just gave it to the kid, and ten minutes later, the guy came out and said, "They're all gone." It's like, oh well. Yeah. But yeah, I've been really thinking about doing something like this, and making a main arcade or something like that. So this yeah. is really cool. You know, I've seen the arcade one up type things, mm-hmm. but I don't like it because you have to buy so many different units to get all the different games those arcade one-ups are pretty cool and you can hack them a little bit if you if you are so inclined my problem with them is you can't really tell from the video i'm six foot five and a half so the arcade one-up machines even with the risers are just so tiny for me that i just Mm. i can't do it so i I need a like a bigger machine for myself but otherwise those are very those are very cool i think yeah i like them it's just you know how many how many people have uh enough room to put four or five, six of those in there and, and wherever they got. <laughs> <Some of them. laughs> for right and you, for you listeners, you can't see the video. Matt just raised his hand. So he, he has room. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. So, all right. I'll check that out. Definitely. Thanks. All right. Thanks guys. That was a good show. Yeah. And, great. Yeah. Uh, all right. Matthew, thanks for, for joining us and filling us in on all of the cool stuff you guys are doing at Couchbase. Well, pleasure's all mine. Thank you for having me on. All right, guys. Yeah. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in.net. Bye y'all. Bye. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.